Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. She woke up early in the morning, the sun still refusing to climb to its proper place. She climbs out of bed, she throws a a shawl over her shoulders, pulls it up on her head, tucks it in tightly, crawls from bed, begins to start her day. She knows good and well, and you know the feeling where you're up too early, but you can't really go back to sleep. Her eyes are puffy from crying for the last three days. She leaves the house and she just starts walking. I don't know if you do that, but sometimes it's just cathartic to just walk or just to run as if you're trying to outrun whatever it is that's happening. She just walks. She finds herself in the garden cemetery that she had been at just a few days before. She wanted to just be near him again. You see, she met Jesus much like we meet Jesus, always at our worst, right? That's typically when we come in contact with Jesus is when we are at our worst, We don't really know much about her life. What we do know, if we can play in reverse, we can maybe deduce a couple of things. One of them is this. Her childhood must have been something that crushed her confidence, left her lonely and longing for love on some level. Even to the point that it seemed she had opened herself up to some level of vulnerability, even so much that she was so unsatisfied in needing the company of something or someone that she even opened her heart up to conversations with dark spirits. Then she met Jesus. Every city has him. I've been to a few of them. I've seen them. You know them. And when I talk about them, their faces are going to come to mind. There's these people who walk in our cities. They just walk around, and you don't know what they do. They just walk around. Most of the time, we don't really know their name. They just are that person who walks. This is her. When she met Jesus, she was walking in her typical neurotic fashion, as she always did throughout the town. But it was the way he said her name that really melted her heart. Now, I don't mean melt her heart like middle school, spiral notebook, doodling, love type of... I mean, the way he said her name. You see, typically those people, they're known by their quirks. They're known by the weirdness that they do. They're known by where they go and what they do. But she just longed, that little girl inside of her just longed to be addressed by her name. She didn't want to be the weird girl anymore or the fat girl anymore or the ugly girl or the dirty girl anymore. 
just wanted to be known by her name. There's a clamoring crowd on the corner, and as she comes walking by, it was just what he said that sucked her in. Mary. Mary. To say that she was magnetically drawn to him <clears throat> is an understatement. He spoke with power, with might, with gentility. It was like his words were spirit and they were life. There was no show. There was no televangelist type of story going on. He didn't drag her up front in front of the crowd. He just walked to her and simply said, release her. Release her. And the gospel writers write, Jesus cast seven demons out of this woman. Pretty powerful. But you know what happens in that situation, don't you? She followed Jesus everywhere. It didn't matter where Jesus went. She followed Jesus everywhere. She loved him. She worshipped him. She served him. Wherever Jesus went, Mary Magdalene went too. But now he's gone. And see, some people don't know this. But there are people in the world who, just because of their just because of their existence, the fact that they are who they are, it somehow gives you permission to be you. Do you know those people? Just when you're around them, you can just breathe because now you can be you. There's always a place with those people. It's as if they grant you permission on some level. Even if they're not around you, they just open up this capacity to say, there's always a safe place for you to be yourself anywhere that I'm around. And even if I'm not, you're okay in my book. That's how she felt about Jesus. And even though he's gone, it seemed, it's, it's a weird phenomenon. Like, why do we go to the cemetery and sit? It really makes sense. Because we feel like the, there was just never enough time. And he's gone. And she just wants to finally be in a place. Maybe she won't go all the way back to what she was before if she can just go and sit. Just sit in his presence and maybe just pretend, maybe. A fog had rolled in, which is quite fitting, really. Like her plans, like her next step, like her next move. The morning, everything is covered in a fog. The sun still refusing to shine, plus the canopy of <clears throat> the fig trees still blocking out some of the moon's reflection. She had just been in this garden just a few days ago when they had taken the body of Jesus and they had washed it and they had cleaned it and they had wrapped it in linens and then they took a big stone and they rolled it in front of it. They sang a few songs a couple of heartless hymns. You know how it goes. 
And everybody went back to the church to have the dinner. It was over. Except this time something 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 strange. There's just enough light to tell that the stone has been moved. I don't mean tilted, jostled. I don't mean it's been scooted a bit. There's, there's a little crack there now. I don't mean that. I mean the stone looks as if it were the ball of a child that had just been kicked aside. And the tomb is open. Mary Magdalene, a little confused, a little already on the, you know, goes to the tomb and peeks in. You don't run in a tomb. I don't know if you know that. You don't just run on in. She just peeked in. Jesus is gone. After a long night of stoking the fire, adding logs, two disciples sat in a house, cuddled up in the corner, trying to sleep. But you know what it's like to sleep when you've gone through some sort of tragedy, right? You have to just exhaust yourself and then fall out. There's no just roll over and go to sleep. You have to exhaust yourself. That's where they are. And suddenly there's three quick raps on the door, followed by three more. Then the rhythm broke, and this emotional firestorm begins to collide with the door. Bang, 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 bang. Bang, bang, bang. The disciples open their eyes and they look at each other. You know that look when something happens and you look at the person who's with you, and it's like you're trying to figure out should we be scared or should we not be scared? Should we run? Should we fight? What should we do? And they begin to stare at each other like, oh my goodness. You see, the problem is this. They saw what the Jews and the Romans had done to their master. And they feared they may be next. Then there was a voice. A voice on the other side of the door, a familiar one in fact. Simon, Simon, it's me, Mary. Oh, it's crazy, Mary. Never been so glad to see crazy Mary. Peter opens the door and jerks her inside quickly, wanting to desperately scold her for scaring them. But she would not give one single second to him to speak. And she started. I got up early this morning and I went there. The rock has been moved. And he's not there. Somebody took him. Somebody took who? Peter, listen. I got up early this morning, and I went to the tomb. Mary, why are you going to this? That's the point. Listen. I got up early this morning. I went there. Somebody moved the rock. He's not there. Somebody took him. Okay, okay, okay. Mary, calm. Just, just calm down. But, but Peter, like, I, I got up early this morning. Mary, you said it. I heard you. I get it. Let me get my coat. Peter and John, they throw their coats on. They follow Mary through the house the whole time. She's telling them, I went there early. I went there early. Okay, Mary, okay. She goes out the door. He says, shh, shh, shh. 
of the way there, she tells the same story. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know what happened. I went there. He's gone. He's not there. Someone must have. Okay, let's go see. Quiet down. Quiet down. As Peter opened up the door, John jetted. He's the younger disciple. I don't know if you know this or not, but young people, they tend to be a little more agile. I envy some of that. Some of you envy me. John Jets making his way through the city. In fact, covering some of the same roads that their Savior had helplessly carried his cross down a few days before. He breaks off, steps out of town just a bit to this little garden cemetery, little place, um, the family grave of a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He was kind of a secret disciple. Not really something you should brag about. But a secret disciple. But he was generous enough to hand over the family plot to Jesus because he did not have one of his own. John is to the tomb first. He also did what Mary Magdalene did. He just looked in. You don't run into a tomb. Anyone who wants to just run into a place like that, scary place like that, there's ghosts and stuff, John peeks in. What he sees is really, 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 really strange. Where the body of Jesus once laid were all the burial cloths. The linens that they had wrapped his body in. The body wrapped separately than the head. But inside, the linens are laying just as they were originally placed. Only this time, they are empty. He's just peeking. Peter, on the other hand, he's a little more, you know, Peter don't mind. He's not really scared of much sometimes. This he's not. John's peeking. Peter comes running by. He's older. He's later than him. Pushes John aside, stumbles onto the floor of the cold, damp cave, and sees for himself the very thing. Jesus is gone. Mary is, in fact, correct. He's not here. You see, grave robbers are of a weird, weird, weird type. It's one thing to steal from the dead, but for a Jew, it's even weirder, because it's not so much the thievery. I mean, that counts. But it's the handling of a dead body for a Jew. Like, you could find a different way to make some money. Here's the other thing about grave robbing. You don't rob Jesus' grave, not because it's holy, although it is, but because Jesus didn't have anything. He was asked at one point some question about, would it be okay if I followed you? And Jesus explained to them, I don't have a home, you know. Foxes have holes. Birds have this. I have nowhere where I lay my head. Jesus didn't have anything. You don't rob Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know 
He doesn't have anything. Here's the other thing about it. Let's say you are of a dodgy character, okay? Maybe ill repute. You probably liked Jesus. And Jesus probably liked you. It didn't make sense for the Jews or the Romans to steal the body because it stood as an example of what can happen to you if you try to subvert the government. And the disciples, well, they weren't going to steal the body. They had seen what had happened. They knew they were next in line. This is a weird type of divination. Peter and John set for an eternity looking at the burial claws, running it through their head. What could have possibly happened here? And then silently, they give up and they shuffle out of the tomb. It's a weird deal, I have to be honest. There was a little part of me that wanted to criticize Peter and John. You know why? Because they just left the tomb. They walked off in silence. No, nothing. And you know who they left there? In the cemetery? In the dark? Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is now alone in the tombs. Maybe it's just a dream. Maybe, maybe I just woke up just now. And everything that had been going on was only a terrible nightmare. I have slept, walked my way here, and I just, and she goes back to the tomb to look one more time. She peeks in. She doesn't go in, just peeks in. Only this time the tomb is not empty. At the head, where the, where the burial wrap for the head is, beside it is sitting an angel. At the foot, there is another angel, and she's sobbing her eyes out. She misses her Lord. Her friends have left her in the tombs. And the angel looks at her and says, Why are you crying? Their illuminated nature must not have impressed her too much. She didn't even seem to notice that they were angels. She just explains the story. My Savior was here. My Master was here. This is where they buried Jesus. Now he's gone, and I don't know where they put him. <laughs> she walks away. Listen, I'll be honest with you. If I come face to face with two angels, you're going to hear about it first. I promise. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to be like, whoa. You're not going to believe this. She's just like, ah, whatever. Walks out of the tomb. When she turns around in the middle of her pain and her anguish, she doesn't even recognize Jesus is standing in front of her. He says to her, woman, why are you crying? She's kind of got some, some history, you know? She thinks he's the gardener. She really does. She, she thinks he's the gardener. Sir, if you, took my, if you took my teacher, if you took Jesus, please tell me where you put him. I won't be mad. I won't press charges. I'll just go get him myself. You have the visual, right? 
is really asking a lot. Just tell me. And she turns and she collapses on the floor, her back to the very person she's looking for. And then he does it. Then he does it. He says it. He says it the very same way that he said it when she first met him. He says her name. Mary. She knew the voice. She knew the tenderness of it. She knew the, the purity of his voice. She knew his voice. And she turns and she sees him and she screams, Teacher. She runs to him and she embraces him. Finally, now she's whole again. Maybe she's going to make it. I missed you so much. Jesus consoled her, but just for a moment. Mary, thank you. So good to see you. Listen, I can't stay. I haven't even seen my father yet. I've got to go there first, but here's what I need you to do. I need you to go tell my brothers that I've come back, that I'm on my way to see my father, my father and your father. My God and your God, Mary, there's a place for you. Tears of sorrow now become tears of joy. All the desperation and loneliness and brokenness is now overflowing on the other side. In the very same house she had just rapped on the door and woke up the same two men, Jesus tells her, go get those idiots. They wandered off way too fast don't know what they're in a hurry for. Get them. She says, oh, I will get them. <laughs> There's a clamoring <clears throat> at the door. <clears throat> Excuse me. But she's not knocking this time. She's trying to get in. Hey. Hey. Whoa. Peter. John. Whoa. Hey. Open the door. Like, oh, who is it? You know who it is. You know who it is, John. Don't ask. It's crazy Mary on the other side of the door. Just pretend like we're sleeping. Answer the door and she's going to keep knocking. Mary, what? Mary, what? I saw, I saw the, I saw the Lord. What? You left too early. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. <laughs> I saw the Lord. I saw him. He wanted me to come and tell you. He's going to see his father. He said he's going to go see his father and my father. He said he's, he's going to go see his God and my God. He's, he's alive. Every single disciple needed to know this information, not just Peter and John. All day long, disciples were showing up, waiting on them. And every time one of them walked in, he said, what is the commotion? What is going on? Peter had to do it. He had to look at Mary, and Mary loved it. She loved being the center of attention. She loved it. Peter, Peter, we have to look at Mary and say, Mary, you want to tell? Yes, I'll tell the story. Okay, so here's what happened. They left me in the garden, right? I was there all by myself, except I wasn't. He came back. She tells every single disciple, the only disciples who did not make it to this meeting, this conversation, 
with Judas because he had hung himself. And Thomas because he just couldn't get on board. In the middle of this conversation as all the disciples minus those two are there, something miraculous happens. You know, they're fearing for their lives at this point. They saw what happened. They don't want it to happen to them. They kept the doors locked. In fact, Scripture is clear about this. A couple of times it says, and they were behind locked doors. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's really not much you can do about Jesus coming into you life and house. And you can lock all the doors you want. He just kind of gets to go where he wants. Kind of the luxury of being God and all. And as they're meeting there, having a conversation, Jesus comes in and joins them. Some of them were startled. Some of them wept. Others were still staring at the fire, thinking it through, watching this hypnotic dance of these flames, and they had not even noticed that there was somebody new in the room and looked up. Jesus? Jesus? It's a fantastic, fantastic moment. People were thrilled. The disciples were losing their mind. They were so excited. Jesus said, peace, be still. There's something very haunting about Jesus at times. I guess that's why we say Holy Ghost, right? He just appears. And so I guess it's right fitting for him to say, peace. Because I imagine in a situation like that, where somebody you know, who you watch die, and then Barry shows up in your living room while you're trying to eat some fish, Peace, too late, way too late. He breathed into the room and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> He's in the midst of trying to establish the church. Listen, forgive those who need to be forgiven and those who you do not forgive are not forgiven. And then disappeared from sight. <laughs> never enough, never enough time, never enough. You only get these moments, it's never enough. And maybe that's the thing, maybe that's the trick of it all. There's got to be something that hooks me to make me look forward to heaven, these little bitty moments. It was so perfect, I want more of that now. Can't have it now. And he was gone. Thomas needs to know this. Thomas needs to know this. There was a clamoring at the gate. He looked out the window and he saw them. He knew them. He had spent every single day of his life for the last three years with these same people. So when this small, excitable mob came up to the door, in all of his skepticism, it had somehow made its way from his heart to his face. And it's a scowl. Something about that, that skeptical look. And as he opened the door, hi guys, how are you? Peter's beaming, trying to keep a secret, which he's terrible at. Uh, so, uh, we saw Jesus. Okay. 
Mary, you want to you tell him? Yes, I'll tell, I'll tell him. I'll tell him. So I'm in the tomb. They left me there alone by myself. And Jesus appears. And then we were meeting together just the other day. And, and he showed up again. And then simultaneously, all the other disciples begin to talk on top of one another. He blew his breath in the room and gave us the Holy Spirit. He said something about forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. I don't know what he means. And then he disappeared. The door was locked, too. Guys, look. Unless I see the whole, he doubles down. You can read it in scripture. John 20. Unless I see, unless I put my finger into the hole, unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I'm sorry. Goodbye. He closes the door. A week later, the disciples get together to break bread, to pray, to talk. There's a knock at the door, and it's Thomas. They open up the door, and there he stands. You see, what had happened was this. He's a facts-based man, and maybe you are too. You're just a facts-based individual. Until you see it for yourself, you cannot say, yes, it did, or no, it didn't. I have to witness this myself. He's a facts-based man. Can you blame somebody for being that way? Oh, oh, should we all just be just so loosey-goosey with our faith, just buy into everything? Good luck with that. And oh, how he wished he could be a little more given to some overwhelming spiritualism, some sort of charismatic emotionalism. He wished he could, but the facts were this. He wasn't that kind of guy. Until I see it, until I touch it, I can't get there. I'm so sorry. But there was another set of facts that he had neglected. And the facts were this. If you spend enough time with Jesus, you learn how to do a few things that you didn't know how to do before. For instance, love people. And he had figured out how to love people by watching his Savior. I'll tell you what else he figured out from watching Jesus. That's how to be loyal. That's another set of facts that he had not considered. These people were, in fact, his closest friends. He had spent nearly every single day with them for three years. Of course they were close to him. They are family to him. And the facts that he had not thought about were this. I'm a loyal guy. And even if I can't get on board with what they believe, I can still go and stand with them. Christians, that's probably pretty important for us to know. So he goes to church, there with them, meets at the house. They open up the door. What a cool moment, because the church did exactly what the church is supposed to do in these moments. Thomas, Thomas, good to see you. I'm glad you came. His head hung in shame a little bit, wondering about the awkwardness of how he's going to 
explain why he's there and how he still isn't there. Thomas, good to see you. Can I get you a drink? Thomas, good to see you. Thomas, good to see you. And he hugs all of the disciples, and he gets to the end, and he turns around, and somebody else is now in the room. Somebody who was not present when he got there, but is present now, standing on the other side of the room, looking at him. When the disciples, the other disciples see him, they all part, and they move. It's a standoff. You've seen the westerns, right? You part. This guy looks like he's got beef with that guy. And this guy, this visitor, comes walking straight towards Thomas. You can see the look on Thomas's face. He's a little puzzled, like he'd seen a ghost. And as the man walked to him, he walked with his hands extended. He walks right up to him and he says to him, see my hands? Freaking tears begin to well up in Thomas's eyes. See my hands? Put your finger there. In my imagination, Thomas extends his hands and he touches the palms of Jesus. He lets his fingers slide down the palm just so much so that it falls into the divot in his hand. It's a healed wound, it's a scar, yet the hole remains. And his finger falls into the deal, and when he does, the dam on his eyes break, and he weeps. He can't keep it back. It's really, really him. He asked for it, it showed up, and now it's there. But the visitor isn't done with him yet. Opening up his robe and pulling it to the side, there's another wound just like it. It's scarred up, but the hole remains and in my imagination, I think Jesus grabbed his hand and pulled it to him and said, put your hand here. Thomas felt his fingers go in underneath the ribs into that hole, and it broke loose. And then Jesus, gazing into Thomas's eyes, looks at him and says, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas responds in perfect fashion. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, You believe because you see, but blessed are those who do not see and believe. That's us. And then, disappears again. Ah, never enough. Never enough. Over the course of the next 30 days or so, Jesus will reappear a few times. He'll have some more interaction. He'll commission them on exactly what he wants done and what the church is supposed to do. And then he will ascend into heaven. That still won't be the last we hear of Jesus because us who are Christians... We are waiting for his return still. But here's what's interesting to me. I look at the story and I see a few things. When I think about this idea of never enough, I start with Mary Magdalene. And this is what I think. Mary Magdalene's backstory was not enough. It's never enough to keep Jesus from moving into your life. You know what? Your backstory is no different. 
He said her name. Do you know what Scripture says? Scripture says that God has your name written on the palm of his hand. Your backstory is never enough to keep Jesus from moving into your life. Yeah, but you don't know what I did, Jared. Yeah, you're not that special. You, you're not that creative. You're not that bad. I mean, what are you doing here? Your, your backstory is never enough to keep Jesus from moving in. I think about Peter and, Peter and uh, John. As they stand in the tomb trying to think their way out of the situation. Just thinking, they're just thinking and thinking. You see the little smoke just like, just trying to think it. They can't get there. Jesus had said to them so many times, I have to die and then I will come back. I have to die and then I will rise again. I, will, I have to die but then I will resurrect. He had said it over and over and over. And then in the moment when the tomb is empty, the linens are still there. They can't even get their heads there. Your abilities are never enough to keep Jesus from doing the impossible. It's easy to look at your circumstances. It's easy to look at your relationships. It's easy to look at life sometimes and say, it's dead in the water. It is broken beyond repair. Nothing can happen to fix where I'm at and what's gone on and what I've done and everything that I've broke and everything that's happened to me and the way I've been mishandled. It's easy to look at that and say, there's no fix for me. Do you realize that your abilities to fix you don't really matter? Your abilities are never enough to keep Jesus from doing the impossible. And the third one is this, Thomas. I like people who are facts-based guys because I'm not one of them, right? Like, I spend more time thinking about things that... That probably nobody cares about but me. And I'm not a facts-based guy when it comes to just, I need to see it, I need to see it. My imagination is way too big. I don't need all that. My imagination just comes up with it, and I'm like, seems right. But Thomas is not. And maybe that's you. And maybe you've shown up on a, on a day like this with this skeptical thing about you. Good. Let me, let me say it again. Good. Don't change a thing. Because let me tell you what the recipe is. Thomas asked, unless I see it, unless I touch it, I can't believe it. And then you know what he did? He went to church. It's one thing to say, I have to see it. It's another thing to say, but I'm not going to put in the work. I have to see it with my own eyes. And then he went to church. Your doubts are never enough to keep Jesus from moving into your life. If you ask him, then you wait. Your doubts are never enough to keep Jesus from moving into your life if you ask him and then you wait. Do you want him to move into your life? Ask him and then wait. We are never enough. In so many levels, we are never enough. Do we deserve what's gone on? No, I'm not enough. But somehow in the middle of all that, Jesus is.